Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the Production Advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me, as always, this week is my co-host, John Tidy. Hello, everyone. And just before we get going with the main topic this week, I just wanted to briefly mention something that you might be interested in if you enjoy The Mastering Show. Um, as I mentioned, I run a website called Production Advice, and... I also run an online course called the Home Mastering Masterclass. Uh, it's an eight-week course. Every week I master a different song, different genre, using different software and plugins, and you get to virtually be a fly on the wall and watch the process. So I explain what I'm doing, I explain how I'm doing it, and I explain why. And if you're a regular listener to the show, a lot of the topics will be very familiar to you. But the great thing about video is that you can actually see and hear all the things that I'm talking about as they happen. So it goes beyond just being theoretical and you actually see how all of these things that we talk about on the show every week fit into a real world mastering scenario. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in, please head over to homemastering.com and check it out. As I mentioned, it's an eight-week course, which gives you time to process the information at each stage and also ask me questions. And I hold two or three live Q&A sessions where you can actually join me on a Google Hangout and ask for extra information if you need it or specific questions that you might have, and I'll do my best to answer them. Because I have that live element, it means that I do only run the course a few times every year, so if you're not listening to this episode when it was originally recorded and you head over to the website, don't worry, you can sign up for an email list there um, and you'll be informed as soon as it opens up again. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, please head over to homemastering.com and take a look and maybe I'll see you there. So let's get down to the topic in hand. This week's episode is called... Oh, you came up with the name, John. What's it called? How bright is too bright? How bright is too bright? I think that sums it up perfectly. So we're going to be talking about high-end, high frequencies. Uh, we did an episode about bass um, a little while ago. And yeah, high-end is another thing that I get lots of questions about people struggle with quite a bit. So uh, we're going to briefly talk about monitoring, um, how that influences how we hear high-end and what we do with it. Um, then I think the theme of the episode is going to be about balance. That's the key uh, for me. I mean, in mastering in general, everything is about balance, even if something is not quite balanced, which you can sometimes do as a creative decision. Um, and then we're going to finish up by talking about some techniques that you can use to help get better results yourself when you're mastering. We've done a whole episode on monitoring and acoustic treatment before, so I don't think we're going to spend too long on this topic, but it kind of goes without saying that if you want to get the high end right or anything right in mastering, your monitoring needs to be right. And a little idea that I have I put this in a blog post years ago um, is what I call Newton's third law of EQ, um, which, I mean, most people know Newton's third law of motion, which is that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And I always think the same thing applies in EQ. If you boost one thing it pushes the sound in a different direction. So if you add extra bass to the sound, it will probably end up sounding dull. Whereas if you cut the bass, probably everything will start sounding bright, uh, even though you haven't done anything to the high end. 
I mean, that must be something you've come across, John. Sure. Yeah, it, it definitely does um, affect that. And and while we're talking about you know, the monitors, the same thing can can happen if your monitors are too dark sounding, the tweeters are underpowered or something like that, then you're going to mix everything too bright because you're doing the opposite to make it sound balanced. Exactly. Right. The, the monitors push one way, you push the other, you react to it, and you end up with something that's not balanced. So one of the first things you need to do if you're going to do any kind of mastering is reasonably balanced monitoring. And I guess you could use some kind of correctional EQ or plug-in to kind of help with that if things aren't balanced to begin with. But ideally, you want the best balanced monitors you can get. And then, of course, the other thing that affects the way that you hear those monitors is the acoustics, the, the space that you're in. And again, without kind of going into too much detail, the, the basic rule of thumb is, uh, well, I remember, in fact, if people want to go and kind of take check out the videos on my blog of when I set up uh, this little room at home so that I could do some work from here, this is uh, used to be the garage of my house. And when I kind of first came in here, it didn't sound too bad. And the walls were bare brick, which is quite a rough surface. By the time the whole room had been boarded out and plastered, it sounded horrendous. Um, and the only thing that had changed is that those kind of rough textured surfaces had gone to being from being rough to being smooth and flat. And suddenly the high end bounced around the room and it just it just sounded terrible in here. It kind of sounded metallic. And I mean, there were parallel walls. There were other problems that kind of contributed to that. But the rule of thumb is if you don't have enough absorption or diffusion in your room, something to scatter the high frequencies around, if they just reflect back off all these hard surfaces, everything's going to sound unnatural and too toppy. And the chances are you will EQ the overall sound to be too dull because you're hearing too much top, just like with the monitors. And the same thing can happen if you have too much broadband absorbers around your mixing or mastering position. So it has to be, you know, again, it's a balance of treating the low end, but not killing all of the um, the high end. And I've, I found that in, um, I found that to be the case in my last studio where I had a fairly small room and I had um, acoustic treatment in the first half of the room, like total coverage. And I found out with a room EQ thing that, I was getting like, I don't know, 60B down at in the high end. I'm like, okay, well, I'll switch these acoustic panels to diffusers on the sidewalls. It just sounded so much better. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's And that can be, incidentally, one of the problems with acoustic foam, um, which is typically it, it only really does stuff in the high frequencies. So the, the kind of the risk is even higher with a, a broadband absorber you're a little bit safer. But again, that balance word again. I personally feel you don't want a mastering room to be too dead because unlike maybe a recording room where it's really important that you control the acoustics or even maybe a mix room, I guess, we're kind of assessing the stuff as it goes out into the world where it's going to be played in rectangular and square rooms with typically plastered walls. So you know, maybe also some soft furnishings, some curtains and stuff. So the typical living room where somebody uh, is listening to music isn't a kind of completely dead environment. So obviously it doesn't make sense to EQ it that way either. So yeah, there's, I mean, we could, we have spent an entire episode on acoustics, so I don't, we won't go into any more detail there, but uh, it's definitely 
uh, a fundamental part of of getting things right. And it's well, you know, it's really easy to be fooled by the bass by your monitoring and your acoustics, but it's also really easy to be fooled in terms of the high frequencies as well. And in fact, okay, I said I wasn't going to say any more, but I'll say one more thing. <laughs> um, if, if you know, we talked a lot in terms of the bass end, or, or it's often the low end that gets discussed when you're talking about acoustics. Uh, you know, the the fact that you get bass build up at certain frequencies or or kind of holes where the 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 frequency response really drops off in the room because of cancellation because of waves coming back off the walls those will fool you just like the, the same thing that the the third rule of eq if if there's a a hole in the base at your mixing position or your monitoring position then you will be tempted to put too much bass in there and you'll never get the top end right in relation to it or if there's a bass build up same thing will apply you'll you'll either cut that frequency or end up adding too much high frequency to try and compensate for it. Um, so yeah, it's all about getting balance. And since we're talking about balance already, let's kind of move on to that as a topic. If you've been listening to the last five or 10 minutes, you'll be thinking, well, okay, all of that's well and good, but how do I know what balanced EQ sounds like? How do I know what when I'm getting a balanced result? The simple answer to that is, as always, reference tracks. You need to, you know, pick some recordings that sound amazing to you everywhere, you know, on, on the widest range of uh, monitoring equipment, be earbuds, in the car, on your hi-fi, wherever it is you listen. Bring that into your audio software. Loudness match it first so that you're not tricked by the song being a couple of dBs louder into thinking that it's got more bass or treble than it actually has. And then start comparing the different songs and that's a that can be a great way to kind of i guess calibrate your ears you know to kind of once you know what everybody else is doing then you know whether what you're doing is in the same world or not i guess the one note of caution on that is that there's such a variety of stuff out there that you you have to be you have to listen to a really wide range of material to know that you're somewhere you kind of need to i think find a middle line um, you know, if, if everything sounds bright in your room, the room is probably a bit bright, but if it's just a couple of albums, it's probably those albums and you're not too bad. If everything sounds really dull, that's probably a sign like you had, John, that you're, you need to think about the monitoring or the acoustic treatment and maybe tweak something before you start using those tracks as references. Yeah, I agree. And, and the, the reference mixes are, th- are there to help you. Um, uh, you're not trying to like, be better than them you don't need to be brighter than the reference mixes because you've already confirmed that these mixes translate really well to in your studio in your headphones all these sorts of things something that might be fun or interesting to try is to high pass your monitoring chain so that you're just getting the, the top end and then listen to these various reference tracks and see like where is that on the meters and where does that sound and how different do they sound if you're only focused on that one frequency range, let's say from 5K and up or from 8K and up. How do your monitors sound? How do these tracks sound? How do your own masters or mixes compare? Yeah, I definitely think focusing in on a particular frequency range is a good idea. I'm going to I'm gonna push back slightly against that suggestion, though, because of the whole balance thing. You know, do, well, okay, so maybe now's a good time to talk about kind of guidelines. So if you, if you have your reference tracks... Um, sound good everywhere else and that sound good in the studio after you've loudness matched them. What are you aiming for in terms of the overall, you know, the overall EQ balance? We keep talking about having it balanced. 
Um, and I think probably the easiest way to answer that is to say that if you have some kind of analyzer, some kind of you know frequency analysis plugin or meter or whatever, probably you want a reasonably even frequency response all the way up to maybe 10k. After which I think it's it's okay for it to drift down gently. Um, that's the kind of guideline that was given to me when I was being trained as a mastering engineer. And the the idea was that that more or less matches the kind of frequency content you get in the real world. If you took a, a full frequency source like uh, a symphony orchestra, that's the kind of frequency response you would get from that. Or if you had a kind of an acoustic group playing, you know, acoustic instruments, that kind of natural frequency response sounds good to us. Now, there are exceptions to that. You know, if you have a genre like EDM or something where you might have some kind of artificially generated sounds where you might have more high frequency stuff going on. But that's a good kind of idea to keep in mind. It's not necessarily saying that the frequency response has to be flat, but uh, you want to avoid having any obvious kind of gaping holes in it. If you're looking at the analyzer and there's a kind of huge dip somewhere, maybe that's an issue. Having said that, all of this stuff depends on the arrangement. And that's where I kind of come back to your suggestion of high pass filtering a mix. That can be interesting just in terms of seeing how much frequency content, high frequency content there is in what you're listening to. But it's slightly artificial because you're removing all the stuff lower down that would balance with it. So just for example, if you had, um, oh, say blues harmonica, right? Going through a, going through a, a big old amp, you've got this kind of really kind of honky nasal warm thick rich sound with kind of almost no top end at all in it so if you had let's say stand-up bass and harmonica playing there'd almost be no high frequency in that arrangement naturally so trying to balance that across the frequency spectrum would make no sense because there was nothing there musically to begin with so i think you when we're thinking about these ideas of balance and whether or not there's whether you've got an even frequency response, it has to be something that has a full uh, frequency range represented in the arrangement. You know, to take another example, if you had uh, somebody playing, oh, uh, something all, all up in the high register of a harp or um, violin or electric guitar right up at the top of the, you know, at the top string, these sounds just don't have any low frequency content in them. Cymbals, uh, if it's somebody playing brushes on a kit, whatever. So you have to kind of have the context in your head when you're figuring out what the right balance is all the time. Do you have any suggestions for reference tracks? <laughs> okay, so everybody listening, John asked me this um, earlier on today when we were talking about the topic for today's episode. And actually, it's a really difficult question because what I find is when I go to my music library and kind of call up all the stuff that I think has a really beautiful top end I end up hearing all kinds of problems. <laughs> um, so it's actually quite challenging. And the other thing is that taste plays into this a lot. So when I think about kind of a, the really a beautiful high frequency kind of aspect to a recording, the, the word that comes to my mind is, is, is sweet, sweetness or kind of silky, smooth, clear, open, spacious, all of those kind of words. But if we're talking about a jangly guitar band you wouldn't expect that music to sound that way so you're never going to get that kind of kind of reaction to the to the top end so i do have 
some uh, reference tracks that I'll suggest in a minute for people who are interested. But I think you have to take all of this stuff with a pinch of salt. Another thing you have to be careful is, is the possibility that things have been remastered. There are a few classic kind of albums sprang to mind. I mean, for example, one when people ask about albums with great sound, one that always springs to mind is uh, Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. But that's been remastered several times recently. I haven't listened to the most recent masters. I don't know what ended up being done. To, they're probably pretty true to the original, to be honest. But uh, some albums have been remastered and, and kind of the sound has changed quite radically. So you have to be careful with those kind of recommendations. Uh, there is actually a Spotify playlist of stuff that I've worked on over the years that we could put in the show notes at themasteringshow.com for anybody who's interested. I'm not saying that anything in there really has a particularly beautiful top end or that kind of the, the recordings are ideal, but it, I've got pretty consistent tastes. When I go back and listen to some of the earliest masters that I did, I'm quite comfortable with the way that they sound in, in most respects. So it could be interesting for people to listen to that because there's a whole a wide range of genres there. They don't sound the same as each other, but they're all kind of what I would consider to be acceptable, if not fantastic sounding. So that kind of might give people a, just an instant idea of uh, kind of one sort of reference level, if you like. Before I tell you my the, the tracks I've chosen, John, do you, how do you feel about this? What kind of recordings, are there any that spring to mind for you when you're thinking about? So yeah, I, I've been thinking about it and uh, and then I, I don't want to suggest it because I, I haven't looked at it like if it's overly compressed or anything like that because I, I think some of them would be. I, I just didn't have time today to like listen to a bunch of stuff and, and then okay. analyze it. Well, that's so, fair enough. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, we were 15 minutes late starting the call because I was suddenly checking all these suggestions and going, well, do I really like the way these sound? Because people are going to... Um... Some of them, like, I might think that they they sound kind of bright, but they might be over-compressed as oh, well. Okay. That's, yes. So loudness were casualties, but I like them anyways. So, you know... Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, actually two or three of the examples I'm going to give, I do think are actually too compressed for my tastes, um, but they still sound great and they still have a great top end. And actually we're going to come back and talk about the dynamics and how that relates to high frequencies in a minute. So that could be an interesting point. So I'll quickly mention some of the ones that I came up with. There is the last Peter Gabriel album up, I think, just works. The sound on that album is incredible. It's a bit more compressed than I would ideally like, but there's an amazing variety of material on there. And when there's lots of top end, I'm just completely happy with it. It's, it's, you know, I just listen to it and it's like, oh, that sounds great. That just works. Um, which is kind of the goal. There's a track by Zero Seven called Warm Sound which sounds very warm, but also sounds really lush and rich. And part of that is because it has that real kind of sweet top end that I was talking about. Um, so that's a kind of, I guess, because of middle of the road pop example, if you like, of something that I think has, has a beautiful high frequency quality to it. Um, the Beck album, Natural Phase, has some incredible string sounds on it. It's got a really big low end on it as well. It's also mastered a bit hotter than I think was necessary. Um, there's only a few points where I think it's a problem, but it's kind of a shame that um, it didn't have a little bit more in the way of microdynamics in it. But 
overall, I think it, it sounds beautiful. And it's a, that's a perfect example of the low end balancing the high frequencies, you know, that, and it's a, that's a real full spectrum sound. It's kind of a really thick, lush texture to that. I was trying to think of some kind of more urban or R&B kind of examples and uh, the Sampha album Process which sounds amazing overall. It, I nearly gave it the Dynamic Range Day Award last year. Um, no, this year. <laughs> We're still in 2018. Um, that's a, a great example, I think. Not always... I mean, there's more variety in that in terms of... Well, all of these, actually... You have to be careful when you're mastering. The temptation is to want to put kind of a beautiful suite to, uh, high end on everything, for example. And of course, that's not appropriate. So this album in particular ha- kind of has some pretty, you know, dark kind of beats and textures in there. But also it's balanced by other aspects in the arrangement that have a uh, great high frequency response. Burial is a kind of, I don't know about EDM, electronica artist, I guess, who... The sound on his albums is amazing. And there's a one track in particular called Come Down to Us that kind of, I mean, it's just fantastic. It sounds amazing. I strongly recommend it to anybody. Yeah, the high frequencies on that really work. And there's kind of a, a nice mix there of kind of aggressive and quite edgy stuff. And then there's kind of some sort of sweet moments as well. And then almost anything that Stephen Wilson has done um, sounds amazing. But uh, The Raven Who Refused to Sing is one of my favorite albums of his and sounds amazing and has. Uh, just beautiful high frequency stuff. And finally, uh, there's a much more aggressive example, Catatonia, My Twin, from the Great Cold Distance album. Again, just sounds incredible. It's it's very clean sounding, which sometimes, you know, in a, is not the case in metal. And I guess people always ask me whether what my tastes are in music and whether I have a sound. I don't think I have a sound in terms... I don't try and imprint a sonic sound on stuff but i do like clean recordings rather than well i mean there's an interesting thing because because the sort of more aggressive genres like punky stuff or you know sounds that have loads of distortion or all of those kind of things tend to not have the the high frequency in those sounds different right that's why it's all about getting the you want something that's appropriate to the material. I talked about, you know, a jangly guitar band is not going to have a beautiful, sweet high end in it. That doesn't mean it sounds wrong or sounds bad. It's what feels right in terms of the high end for a track like that is going to be different than what would feel right for the high end in a, you know, a Beck tune that has this amazing string section on it. So hopefully that kind of gives a range and kind of gives people an idea. But I think that kind of takes us back to the idea of listening to that Spotify playlist, because there you can hear this, the kind of, you have a lot of diversity in the sound and the high frequencies would still be right. That Catatonia album is great. That's one of my favorites. It's the only one on that list that I actually know. Pretty big fan of all their stuff. I mean, I know it because I um, made an enhanced CD of it way back in the day when it was first released. Um, so, and then that was how I kind of discovered them. And there's, they have quite a lot of different sounds over the course of their their career if you like um yeah but yeah that that album just sounds amazing it's a great song as well my twin um and then the other thing i was going to mention was that uh i did do a blog post a long time ago now called uh 12 great sounding albums for sound they don't all have a beautiful 
high frequency quality to them, but they're great sounding albums. So if anybody else wants to hear some kind of some more things that I think sound amazing, um, even if they don't necessarily have a perfectly balanced EQ response, you might want to check that out. And we could put that link in the show notes. So we really should talk about some techniques that people can use to start getting better results. And I've been talking for a long time. So John, why don't you uh, bring up the first one? Well, the most obvious one is using an EQ. You're going to be relying on your high shelf, most likely. And you want to make broad and gentle changes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if we think of an extreme case where that's not true, if you think of a high cut, so, you know, a sharp roll off in the, the high frequencies that gets... The, the cut gets bigger and or deeper and deeper the, the higher up the frequencies you go. The number of times I've used that in a mastering situation, uh, you know, I can count on the fingers of one hand probably, and most of those would have been vintage recordings where there was nothing up there but noise. Although actually interesting little kind of side note, you have to be careful with that as well. I've had to remaster quite a few recordings that come from gramophone where literally the frequency response probably tops out at about two kilohertz in terms of the actual musical content. Um, you might think that that means you can roll in a high cut kind of just above it. And if you do that, you will get rid of a huge amount of surface noise coming off the um, the disc, but it will sound wrong if you do that, because it'll just kind of sound dead and cold and empty because our ears expect there to be something in the high frequencies, even if it's just noise. Um, so you have to be very careful even with even with that. And yeah, you mentioned using a high shelf. I think that's absolutely the right thing to use typically. The nice thing about the shelf is obviously you can just, I mean, you want to correct the overall shape. If there's maybe, you know, a dip at a certain frequency or something is sticking out a little bit, you would use a parametric to kind of even that out. But then you can use the shelf to globally raise or lower the amount of high frequency in there and you can vary the slope of it that's kind of the ultimate in broad and smooth changes so yeah a sharp cut like a like a high cut is going to sound bad and, and a very narrow parametric as well will probably sound wrong whether you're boosting or cutting unless you're correcting something that was a problem kind of in the original recording which sometimes we are i mean i think that generally applies to eq in general but in particular in the high end um narrow cues kind of quite quickly start to sound unnatural to me any preference for linear phase there um it doesn't have the same pre-ringing problem that the low frequencies do well it, it does but they because they operate at high frequencies uh, the it happens over a much shorter time interval i mean it's, it's a really contentious issue actually there's a huge debate over some people kind of argue that the linear phase anti-aliasing filters used in modern digital audio systems are one of the problems with the sound. That's if you believe that there's a problem with digital audio in the first place. And, you know, it's it's incredibly hard to to test this stuff. I mean, I tend to not worry about it, <laughs> to be honest. It's, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, there are certain situations where there are kind of clear decisions. Like if you're doing, say, a low cut, um, you probably are better to avoid a linear phase EQ. But... Um, because the thing is, you'll get a slightly different response, even if you use something like, say, the, the FabFilter Pro-Q, where you can switch individual... I don't know whether you can switch individual bands, but you can certainly choose whether you've you've got maximally linear phase or whether you've just got minimum phase or whatever it might be. Um, even with the same kind of numbers dialed in, you change this thing and you hear a slight change. It's not necessarily because one is better or worse. It's just because they're slightly different. So, yeah, I think... Well, and uh, just talking about different types of EQ in general, lots of people kind of agonize about 
should I use this plugin or that plugin, this piece of hardware versus that piece of hardware? In general, I would say all that kind of stuff is pretty much a red herring. Usually the the changes that you make with an EQ are much more significant than how you make them or what piece of hardware or what plugin you use. One of the things that can vary between different types of EQ is, for example, is the phase response. And we were talking just before we started recording about, I think, the latest version of the Ozone EQ. You can actually, uh, there's an, an option where you can choose to see the phase response being displayed along with the EQ. But how audible all of that stuff is and when it's the right or wrong thing to do is, you know, I don't think there's a theoretical answer to that. It's all about how it sounds and preference and all the rest of it. Um if somebody kind of used a really extreme EQ setting in the mix, there could be some kind of wild phase change happening in the mix because of that EQ that you then might want to correct using an EQ at your end. On the other hand, maybe not. With all of these things, I think getting the settings right, it'll make a much bigger difference whether you put the crossover of your high shelf at 5K or 8K than it will whether you did that with a linear phase or a minimum phase or whether it was this hardware EQ unit or that hard or this plug-in emulation or the other. Um, and if anybody's interested to hear that, you, know, you don't have to take my word for it. If you want to hear that for yourself, I've been meaning to recommend for a, a while now. There's a website called Gearshoot where you can actually often dial in the, the hardware processor or the plug-in of your choice and compare them, loudness matched, processing the same audio sample. Um, and there's a variety of different samples they use. It's a really cool site. I recommend everybody um, take a look at it. So we'll put the, the link to that in the show notes as well. So besides using EQ, often we need to manage the dynamics of what's actually in the high end. So some of the tools we might use would be like a de or a multiband compressor. I, I've written here in my notes, beware of spikes. <laughs> um, and what I mean about that is, well, let's just imagine, say you've got a string pad playing and then you have an acoustic guitar playing along with it, and the string pad maybe sounds a little bit dull, and you'd like some more high frequency in it. In a mix, you can dial that up, but in a mastering situation, when you start to lift out the top end for the benefit of the string sound, you will also lift out the top end in the acoustic guitar. Um, and if that was a balanced sound to begin with, then you're going to be bringing out kind of... Um, Either you know the the kind of the the spiky jangly stuff, the the sound of the plectrum on the strings, or the the nails if it's played with uh, if it's acoustic guitar, you know, picked or strummed, the kind of the squeaky stuff as fingers move on the fretboard, all of those kind of aspects, and they they can quickly become irritating to our ears. And I think often that's what makes things sound kind of harsh or brittle, is not necessarily there's so much too much EQ but that it's catching aspects of the original sound that are not attractive when they're brought out like that. So, I mean, in some ways that's kind of uh, puts a limitation on what we can do. And that's, that's something we haven't mentioned is that obviously, I mean, well, it applies to the whole of mastering, but we're very much limited by the material we're working on. If you have a vintage recording from a gramophone record that has nothing but clicks, pops crackle and hiss above a certain frequency that's what you have to work with you can only improve it up to a certain point if you have an arrangement that doesn't have any uh, instruments in the low frequencies in it then that's a limit on what you can do the same thing applies to the example i just gave but there are some other tools that we can maybe use to to help work against that 
Well, another example of something that can cause a problem when you want to lift out the top end is just sibilance, the the S's um, and T sounds in a in a vocal performance. They might have sounded fine in the mix, and then once you add limiting or you add any top end EQ, then they just jump out. Right, and just general compression, you know, just kind of yeah. uh, something, yeah, exa- exactly, something that seems to work fine before you start working on the mastering processing, uh, or, or it maybe something catches the, you know, the, the attack and release settings for the compression that you're using are fine for everything else, but they just don't work quite right for, yeah, the, the vocal sounds or the, the strings of the guitar or the hi-hat. Hi-hats, the, yeah, hi-hats, tambourines things like that exactly and, um, and with the edm there's you know there's often purposeful little clicks and lips and stuff that are supposed to be bright and jump out so it's you know something that need to be done very carefully yeah absolutely in terms of what you can do about that um, maybe one of the simplest tools you could try to use is a deessa so most people know how a deessa works you just kind of dial in frequency and you can choose how much of that frequency it will pull back when it gets over a certain point, usually for reducing S's and T's, but you can use that for almost any aspect in the mix, especially if you have a high-quality DSer. You have to be very careful, though, using them over an entire mix because they can be too aggressive. And of course, you know, if you use a DSer in a mix, then it's used on a vocal track and you know that pretty much everything it's going to catch in that frequency range is an S and a T. Whereas if you use it over a whole mix, it could be an S or a T, or it could be the sound of a hi-hat, or it could be the transient of a snare, almost any aspect. So, I mean, all of these processes, I guess, you have to use very carefully. And similar to the DSer is the multiband compressor um, used very similarly if we're just focusing on that one frequency range, you know, just isolating that S or that hi-hat sound. And applying a bit of compression to just that frequency range. Used in that way, they're essentially the same. Yeah, it can be quite hard with a multiband compressor to not all of them allow you to dial in the frequency range that tightly. I mean, it, it depends, obviously. They, they varies from between the different brands that are available. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're using it in that way, I mean, effectively at that point, it's becoming a dynamic EQ. Um, and maybe a dynamic EQ, if that's if if you want to kind of go for that selective kind of frequency response, a dynamic EQ might be a better tool. Honestly, I don't tend to use either multiband compression or dynamic EQ for for these kind of things. I have once used the uh, the FabFilter deesser on a master. I didn't end up buying the plugin, but it was very useful on that day. I think the problem was hi hats in that one, and all my other tools just didn't quite get it right. Yeah, the fab filter is good. Um, I mean, the one that you'll always hear talked about in a in a mastering context is the uh, the Vice um, DSer. I forget yeah. the acronym they use for it, which is now available as a, a plugin. It always used to be only a fantastically expensive hardware unit, but uh, SoftTube have just ported the code across and released it as a plugin. Um, mm-hmm. I've actually been playing with it recently. I haven't um, done enough with it to kind of pass a judgment. But what I would say is that I was experimenting using it on the same track and the fab filter as well and i was really impressed with how well the fab filter stood up against it so um that's that's definitely an option yeah something i needed recently was a multi-band transient designer the one i got was from joey sturgis tones transify Mm -hmm. 
And it's it's more of a mixing tool, but there was just these little clicks and stuff that I need to remove from a master in, in just the top end. And so having three bands of parametric transient shaping was really cool. I found it really helpful. That's interesting. I mean, transient design is something I haven't really experimented with. Um, and I, I probably should. I mean, I said so myself earlier on. I kind of like high frequency. I like plenty of high end in a, a mix or a master, but I, I don't want it to be kind of brittle or edgy or spiky sounding, usually, depending on what the material is. So, and, and most of the, the techniques that we're talking about here are ways of reducing that effect. And since it's usually the transients that have those qualities in a sound, not always, sometimes it's the harmonics, but um, yeah, a transient designer might seem to be the ideal um, tool to use. And I kind of have the same reservations of, can you use it effectively on a whole mix? But uh, uh, the same thing applies to a DS or, or a dynamic EQ or anything else. So, um, And you can always automate it if it's just one section of the song. That's yeah. Absolutely. I mean, well, and that's an interesting, okay, so that's something I hadn't, didn't have in my notes, but it's a, it's a good point. All of this stuff can be done by hand. You know, the most effective de is to automate either an EQ or, I mean, if you're working directly on a vocal channel, you can go and automate a level change or whatever it is. In terms of the little clicks and stuff, maybe you go in and use a de-clicker to reduce that stuff, you know, when you need that real kind of complete transparency. So that's another option, but it is obviously incredibly labor-intensive. Just before we leave multiband compression, one thing that I have sometimes done is to heavily compress a broad high-frequency band, say everything from 3K up, perhaps, but then to dial back the gain, the makeup gain in that band, so that you don't end up with a load more high-frequency in the sound, right? Because the depending on how the compressor works, if it has auto makeup gain, you you compress it really heavily and you end up with a load more top. If you get the attack and release settings right and you choose the band carefully, that can smooth out and soften the high frequencies really nicely. Sometimes. The interesting example that kind of springs to mind about that, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but we remastered the entire back catalogue of the immediate record label, which is Andrew Luke Oldham's label, um, Fleetwood Mac started out on there. There's a, the the nice, I think. There's a, there was a bunch of kind of cool '60s bands on this label. So we were given a, a box set of mint vinyl to use as a reference, but we also had all the available CDs and a load of original master tapes to work from. So the first thing we did was to go through and compare all of these and figure out which sounded best. And often it was the original master tape. Occasionally it was a CD remaster, but even more often it was the vinyl. And the, the fascinating thing was that the vinyl might sound better in terms of having this sweeter, more open top end, even though you had the master tape that that vinyl had been made from. And what that told us was that there had been processing done in the, the mastering stage then when the, when the vinyl was cut in order to change the sound. And what we eventually ended up deciding was that it was exactly what I'm talking about here, heavy, high-frequency compression to kind of control the sibilance and to bring out all the detail in the, the top end prior to the vinyl cut, because obviously you can't cut too much kind of spiky high-end stuff into vinyl or you will just get distortion because of the the curve that's used, the EQ curve that's used when they, you cut the, the disc. That was a sort of a fascinating process. Um, and sometimes it, everything we did, we couldn't just emulate the sound of the vinyl, so we would clean up the vinyl and use 
that as the source instead, just by the by. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there's another uh, sort of slightly similar thing. You, quite often, if, if anybody's ever listened to a, an audio cassette, um, that's that's a tape format, young people, um, <laughs> that was popular back in the 80s. Um, but uh, it would have Dolby noise reduction. And that works by heavily compressing the high end before you record the tape and then you press the button on playback and it uh, de-emphasizes the high frequencies to get back to a more linear frequency response. Lots of people liked playing cassettes with the Dolby button out, which basically meant you heard the very compressed high frequencies. It wasn't particularly natural, but quite a lot of people liked that sound and it's uh, it's a kind of similar effect in some ways. So something that I've found useful at times is to use um, high frequency compression in parallel. So it's kind of similar to what you're talking about with crushing the, the high frequencies. Um, so I just set up a, an extra track in parallel with the, the master track and high pass somewhere, not sure where, uh, without hearing it, but, um, but then just applying some compression and then blending that track in in parallel and maybe it's just in certain parts of the song, who knows, but um, that is one way that you can kind of brighten up something uh, while also still controlling dynamics. It can be an interesting way of, of working. Um, I, I think a lot of people like to um, do the mastering process on individual tracks or on the items themselves, um, but you can always route out to multiple tracks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And you can probably achieve, I, I haven't, tried it myself but you could probably achieve the same thing with uh if, if the plugin has a mix control um yeah it, it would be similar to like if you took the if you had a multi-band compressor and you took just one in the top band and you apply i don't know two to one compression and then like 6 db gain reduction and then you had a mix control for just that band that could be something similar i'm not sure if you would get like a any sort of cancellation from that crossover or anything like that. But that, that was the other thing I was going to say. I think if you were going to try this, then you would definitely want to use a linear phase EQ. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise you uh, will undoubtedly get some kind of cancellation happening. Yeah. In the crossover band, because you, because it's a dynamic process. Um, it's not even like using a parallel EQ where that kind of, that cancellation is part of the sound and you, you could well be happy with it. I mean, I guess you could be happy with it even in a multiband compression situation but i would be concerned yeah. about kind of hearing that that cancellation change as the the amount of compression in the high band changed um yeah the, yeah but the way to avoid that would be have a, a phase linear eq i think the first time i used it was on some sort of orchestral or like quartet sort of uh recordings they were just a little bit too dull sounding i kind of wanted to bring up that natural ambience in the room as well as kind of you know liven up the sound of the strings as well. And so for that project, it was effective, but it's definitely something that I haven't used in probably the last 10, 15 other projects that I've worked on. You know, it, it's something that's kind of rare, but that uh, your mention of the multiband compression example was something that reminded me of that. Have you ever used those other uh, plugins like The Edger or Soothe? I don't, I've never used those, but they're interesting. They are, and I've experimented with both. They're, they're both kind of similar um, in the sense that to everything else that we're talking about here, they're, they're kind of frequency-specific 
um, processes that reduce just certain ranges. Deedger, I experimented with, um, and on the, I, I mean, I, I can't really kind of claim to have a definitive opinion because I, I tried it on one example, and at the time it kind of did something that I that I liked, but I wasn't blown away by it. Um, I have used Soothe uh, a couple of times, and on one project in particular, it really was, it was exactly what it needed. It was kind of amazing. It's definitely uh, a Spider-Man plugin, <laughs> meaning... What does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> it means okay. with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, it's it's very easy to overdo it. It's And you have kind of... So it basically listens to the signal and tries to figure out where any kind of frequency buildup is happening and just pulls it back. So, you know, with a DSA, the challenge is you've got to find the right frequency to control and the same with the dynamic EQ. Um, but the the kind of the plus side of that is it will only affect that frequency range. So if you find the perfect frequency, hopefully you can avoid it tackling anything else. Soothe does enable you to, you effectively have kind of different bands where you can have different thresholds so you can reduce the amount of processing into different bands and you can even exclude certain bands completely. But in the area where it's doing stuff, it will just grab hold of certain frequencies and pull them out. In kind of an automatic way? Yeah, in an, in an automated way. So it's it's very much kind of one of those things. I mean, there are all kinds of parameters you can tweak. It's, there's a lot of flexibility in there. But at the end of the day... If it decides that something needs to be taken out and you don't want it to, it could it could be quite difficult to just exclude that particular frequency range. Um, so it's basically kind of one of those things where if it does what you want, fantastic, and if it doesn't, then you're going to have to look elsewhere. But having said that, it is it is very flexible. It's it's very well designed, and I I yeah, there have been one or two projects um, where it's been absolutely the thing that I wanted. And I think maybe the the thing that I really like about it, maybe an advantage over any of the other approaches that we've talked about is, you know, we've talked a lot about transients, um, but something else that can cause a harsh or a brittle or a metallic kind of quality to the, the high frequencies that you might not want is where there are um, certain harmonics ringing out. So one example that springs to mind is a, a, the piano um, at the studio where I used to work. Uh, I mean, it was a Steinway. It was, it was a, a very high quality instrument, but it had a this kind of quality in some, especially in the upper registers, where the, I mean, the only way I could describe it is a kind of zing. So you would hit the note and in the decay of the note, you could hear these kind of harmonics just singing out. And particularly if it was close mic'd, it got to be quite distracting. You know, it would kind of catch your ear and draw your attention away from the music. Uh, I guess maybe another example might be a guitar with just too much distortion or i mean i mentioned a harmonica before right i mean maybe a, a harmonica where the, the sound is just too edgy um mm. but perhaps only on certain notes this is where the soothe has the power because you might be able to find that frequency range where those harmonics are ringing out too much and have the quality you don't want so you pull them back but then other notes maybe don't have those same harmonics don't react in the same way and those notes therefore sound dull in that frequency range. So you kind of, you can take away the, the sort of the slightly uncomfortable edge to the sounds, but, um, and, and incidentally, this is a kind of the frequencies I'm thinking of are, are definitely in the, the low high frequencies or the very high mids, if you like, it's kind of that, I guess, 
three up to 8K frequency range where these things tend to occur. And yeah, Soothe would be really nice for just kind of grabbing hold of those. And I mean, you can even watch the display and kind of see multiple harmonics being pulled out sometimes. It's quite impressive if, if you're careful with it. Um, and I definitely, you know, I've, I've seen kind of comments from people on social media kind of going, oh, this is my new magic bullet. I use this on everything. This is, And that kind of statement makes me worried. I mean, they're probably talking more in a mixing situation than a mastering situation. I would be very cautious about that when I'm mastering. So, okay, here's an interesting thing we haven't mentioned. I mean, we've been talking a lot about kind of controlling high-end in terms of the kind of the undesirable characteristics. We should probably mention, and we were kind of saying, oh, the type of EQ doesn't matter, but one type of EQ that's a little bit different would be something like the Kush Clarifonic, which I've played with. And that has an interest, some interesting, I think that's a, a parallel EQ, but I think it's not, I think it must include some kind of saturation or compression element in the sound. Otherwise it wouldn't do anything different than any other kind of EQ. I think you're right. It does do, it is a parallel EQ, but then things are blended at the output in a certain way. There's probably some transformers and things like that in there as well. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a plug-in version that's an emulation of it, obviously, um, but but we don't know exactly what's happening under the hood of that. <laughs> but um, it's, I mean, the, it's parallel in the sense that you have the original signal, yeah, and then it's blended with whatever processing you apply. The the reason that sprang to mind though is that I have tried using the Clarifonic twice on a master, um, and in both cases. I didn't tell the client, and in both cases, the client came back and said, oh, there's something weird I don't like about the top end. Mm. Um, so even though it was doing what I wanted, which was, you know, the the benefit to my ear was it was bringing out the high frequencies without kind of um, the, the spiky qualities that were there in the sound getting out of control. Um, that's kind of, as far as I'm concerned, that would be the holy grail of of high-end processing. You know, if 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 I could wish for a processor that I don't have, it would be something that enabled me to pile in as much top as I like without it ever getting harsh or brittle. Um, or unbalanced. Or unbalanced, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and maybe putting Soothe at the end of the processing chain might be one way of doing that, right? Because basically you could just push the, the EQ up into it and as certain areas of that started to get over the top, the plugin might pull them back. Um, I haven't... I haven't kind of tried using it in that way. Although, now I think about it, when I, on the occasions where I have used it, sometimes after adding it to the chain, I kind of think, yeah, well, that's taming things in the way that I want, but now things sound a bit dull. So then I would go back and tweak the EQ going into it. I think that's what everybody wants, really, is you know to be able to have more high-end without um, kind of causing problems. The tangent that I, I just thought of there is... You're absolutely right. You want to be able to add, keep adding top, but not if you add too much of it and knock the sound out of balance. And that's becoming something more of a concern these days. Um, I've seen various people worry about this as a, a kind of a side effect of the loudness normalization that we've talked about often on the, the show and particularly last episode. The concern is that when streaming services or players are reducing the level of very loud tracks, people are going to look for other ways to make their music stand out since they can't use loudness to make it jump out from the competition. They will try other methods, and one of those methods might be to just keep adding more and more top. 
So the concern is that we will have put the loudness war behind us, but then end up with a brightness war um, as a result. <laughs> Hopefully not. Well, I hope not. I mean, my experience tends to be that that's counterproductive, right? You, you know, you have a song, you you push the high end up, and if it's got too much high end in it, it just sounds brittle. You know, it, because of that, the 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 third law of EQ that I mentioned, where you know every EQ action has an equal and opposite reaction. You push in too much high end, it feels like there's not enough bass, um, and bass is a big aspect of the power in a sound. A lot of tweeters on um, home stereos and low end monitors sound really bad as well. So. Yeah, and I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's um, there's no question in my mind that balance is the right way to go, but I it'll be interesting to see whether those concerns, you know, I can imagine people, some, some releases coming out overly bright because people are trying that. And maybe at the time it seemed like a good idea. And I was going to say that maybe the loudness standards will evolve to compensate for that, but to a degree they're, they're, they've been chosen now and people working to those standards. So all you can do is really is relatively minor tweaks. Otherwise the, the, the kind of, the reference that everybody has been working to has suddenly changed and you, you can't keep moving the goalpost on people too much. So yeah, I think that's a, it's an interesting kind of thing to keep an eye on. So one last tool that I, that I use occasionally is some sort of exciter, like a tape saturation or console emulation or something like that. Um, I find that that is one way to sort of increase the brightness. I'm sure it does do stuff to the EQ curve. Um, but I find that a little bit goes a long way with these things and it can sound brighter or it can sound more textured or interesting or there's more detail or things like that in the high end. And some days I'll use the exciter first and, and not touch the high shelf. It depends on the day. It depends on what, you know, what I'm working on. And I know you don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it's see, I, I'm slightly biased. Okay, because my the, in my mind, whenever anybody says Exciter, I'm taken back to when I first started working as a master. Not engineer. the Sonic Maximizer, not that one. <laughs> no, no. Well, I was going to say there was this thing called the Aphex Oral Exciter yeah. um, back in the '80s, which um, people would add to typically vocals, for example, to kind uh-huh. of and and I don't know exactly what it did, but it added some kind of extra high frequency. I think harmonic content, it was probably some kind of harmonic distortion into the sound. So, and my experience of that was people would bring in a mix where I'd go, oh, this sounds dull. I need to lift the top end and you'd do it. And the vocal would just sound bizarre. So you would cut it back again and the vocal would kind of sound more normal and everything else would sound dull. So used as an isolated aspect of the mix, my experience of it was just completely negative. So yeah, whenever anybody says exciter to me, it calls up those memories. Um, and I have used, I've, I've used the tape emulations and the saturation, you know, and, and all the rest of it. And, and yeah, again, these are processes, I guess, a bit like uh, maybe the Clarifonic EQ, where rather than controlling the negative aspects of too much high frequency EQ, um, you're bringing some other quality in to enable you to to make things sound brighter, as you say, without necessarily applying EQ. So I think probably most of these things, again, introduce some kind of distortion, which adds extra harmonic content into the sound. So I think maybe they can be useful, you know, if you have 
maybe a guitar sound that um, had a pretty limited frequency content because of maybe whatever mic was used or the qualities of the amp um, or whatever, and you want to brighten it up. But, you know, if you put in the EQ, there's not a heck of a lot there. Then adding something that adds some, I guess, in, in finger quotes, artificial high frequency to it could be useful. Um, again, I'm cautious. I mean, for me, I tend to reach for those things when the when the sound is too clean. Um, I, I mean, I've talked a lot about how much I like clarity and clean sound in this, but there are definitely times when the genre or the arrangement or the style, you know, kind of it needs aggression or edge or whatever. And that might be the time that I would reach for some kind of saturation or soft clipping or tape emulation or whatever it might be. But it, I kind of, I'm going there for more for a quality of sound rather than the EQ, if that makes sense. I would probably reach for an EQ first, get the EQ, EQ balance right, and then maybe just kind of mess up the sound a little bit. I think I'm maybe more cautious about that because I would always get a client's permission to do that kind of processing, that kind of, at the point where you're, I guess, effectively degrading the sound slightly it for creative purposes feels like it's almost beyond the remit of the mastering engineer. Whereas if you're working on your own material, for example, or I guess, you know, the, your band's material or whatever, or even if you have a, a kind of closer relationship with the client, then it's, that stuff is more fair game, if you like. Um, people kind of say exciters to me in terms of mastering, and I I get all kind of coy about it, but <laughs> it's not to say that anybody shouldn't do that or that they can't be helpful in, in some situations. Is there any... Um monitoring tricks that you use to or you just listen full range that's a good question um well i don't do if you're talking about kind of soloing certain frequency bands and stuff i don't do that um it's not to say that you shouldn't do that but it's i kind of i think my instinct for that is that it's a little bit like eqing a solo channel in a mix um mm -hmm. you know it could it might seem to work but then when you remove whatever that processing is um and listen to the full range signal again, maybe it doesn't work. Um, so you just soloed the low band of a multiband compressor to listen to what that was doing. That can be helpful sometimes to get a, a real kind of, to focus in on where the gain reduction is happening and whether it's the right amount or whatever. But if that whole processing chain is then running into a limiter, you quite often will start to hear distortion at that point because the, the base signal, uh, distorts fairly obviously when it hits the limiter clean but it, that's not necessarily to say that that distortion will be audible or even present when the full frequency uh, signal hits the limiter right because the limiter will respond differently when you haven't soloed that band so i think there's a risk that you could uh i seem to remember a, a thread on facebook or a forum somewhere where somebody was kind of like oh i'm using xyz limiter and it's just distorting constantly and in the end it turned out that they were soloing the low frequency band and they were being concerned about that distortion when they unsoloed it it wasn't an issue so i'm kind of cautious about that one monitoring trick that i do use is to hit the dim button so regular listeners to the to the show will know that i recommend you have a consistent mastering monitoring level whenever you work that you don't adjust so that you can make you can kind of gain objectivity about the sound you can keep the sound in the the right loudness range for your ears to hear a balanced frequency response but i do have a, a, a dim button on the monitoring path which ducks the level i think it's 12 dbs the the dim level on my monitoring 
So I actually have two mastering levels. I have a full level and then I have the dimmed level. And I listen quite a lot at the dimmed level. And I find that's very helpful, actually, in terms of judging loudness. So quite often my process will be at full monitoring level, set up the loudness and the EQ, get all the tracks working well with each other, and then hit dim and flick between. And you get a different perspective on the relative loudness of the songs at that point, And it can sometimes be valuable. And then I will typically come back up to full level to double check the EQs. But sometimes when you dim it, you get a different perspective on the EQ as well and think, oh, hang on. I'm not sure that I would make a, a kind of final EQ decision with the monitors dimmed, but I will definitely pay attention to anything that I hear, especially if you're flicking between tracks. You know, it might be that you've got something mm -hmm. at full level, sounds fine, then you dim it and you flick between and suddenly you go, oh, that sounds a bit dull in comparison to that. And that's our good old friend, the, the Fletcher Munson curves, the equal loudness curves, where when things are quiet, we hear less bass and treble. Um, that, in theory, would happen equally for all of the songs, but only if they all have a similar EQ balance to begin with, right? If you have two yeah. songs and one of them has more high-frequency content than the other, then the change in that we hear in the amount of high-frequency content will make a bigger difference when it's been dimmed. Uh, so, yeah, that can be a useful trick but i think in terms of monitoring that's about it i guess also sometimes i will double check on headphones um you know in particular if um i'm concerned about something kind of sounding too harsh or too too bright it might be useful to get a, a second opinion by yeah using a high quality pair of headphones sometimes i will plug in a pair of earbuds and see how it sounds on those because typically they will have a pretty unnatural high frequency response with lots of peaks and troughs in it um they can be pretty sizzly yeah, they can be sizzly. They can be kind of brittle sounding, tinny. I was listening to something today that I wanted to turn up, but I could only turn down because the top end on that was added to the the kick and snare and stuff was just too loud, too much. Yeah, I think you have to take that with a pinch of salt. If it's a pair of earbuds that you know really well, so for example, the ones that I use are the not the current Apple earbuds, the EarPods, I think they're called, but the, the previous generation. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's what I use. And they're, they're just what I've, they're what I listen to when I'm out walking. I probably won't listen in the studio like that. I would probably, it's like, okay, I think I'm happy with that master. So I'll export it as a bunch of files, put it in the MP3 player or whatever it is, and, and listen to it in the same context that I listen to everything else. Um, and usually it all sounds fine, but occasionally you kind of think, oh, actually maybe that sibilance on that track does bother me or whatever. Um, but I, again, I would never make a final decision based on that it's then a case of coming back to the studio and going okay what do i think about that now yeah maybe i could try this instead um mm -hmm. and get something that sounds right on the mastering monitoring and then you know do the earbud check again but i don't do it that often because usually stuff sounds so bad that I can't. <laughs> it's just depressing <laughs> when you've been listening to something on a decent mastering rig for a while and then you transfer to earbuds it's uh, it's kind of a whole other whole other experience for sure I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. That's plenty. It's gone on long enough. It's, it's yeah. plenty. So <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, um, I think the, the final thing to do is um, to mention the mastering maxim for uh, this episode. I don't think it'll come as any surprise to anybody. We've been talking about it all the way through. It's, it's all about balance. You know, if you set out the goal of having an insanely great top end on your mixes or masters the chances are you'll neglect something else um you can't have beautiful sweet high frequencies without a big rich warm bass to support them and without a full 
natural sounding mid range. Uh, you know, it's it's the yin and yang uh, of audio, I guess. <laughs> um, I think it's probably always true to say that if you see the response on an analyzer increasing above about 8K, there's definitely a risk that you're going to be too bright. Uh, you know, I kind of come back to that guideline from the beginning of a more or less flat frequency response. If it's something like EDM, or if you're deliberately going for a, a super toppy sound, then maybe for that frequency response to stay flat up above 8K is okay. But if it actually starts to increase, you know, with a kind of fairly slow response time, it's like the occasional, you'll see S's and T's or cymbal crashes or whatever, um, push the high frequency content up. But if it's generally sloping up rather than sloping down towards the high end, I think you should be kind of questioning whether you've got ear fatigue or, um, you know, <laughs> the tweeters on your speakers are blown or something, probably. But otherwise, you, you know, it, it's an unanswerable question. It's too bright when it doesn't sound good anymore. So there you go. I hope there was something useful or interesting in there for you. John, thanks as always for helping me host the show and for editing and mixing. Yeah, my pleasure. Another fun episode. Remember, if you enjoy the mastering show, then you might also enjoy the Home Mastering Masterclass. You can find information on that at homemastering.com. If you enjoy the show, please head over and give us a rating and review wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Uh, but iTunes is especially helpful for us, um, and we really appreciate that. Thanks to Kaylee Law for uh, allowing us to use his music for the show, and thanks for listening. Thank you.